every Christmas before uh, we would open gifts around the tree, we would sit down like many families do and read the Luke 2 Christmas story. If you don't do that, then maybe it's a good thing to do uh, before you open gifts is to think about what the real meaning of Christmas is. And so this morning I would like to read a portion of Luke chapter 2, talk a little bit about the history in the background of it and then focus on verses 10 and 11, especially verse 10, the great joy of the gospel. Listen to God's word this morning, Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As many times as we've heard this story, I think like myself, we often uh, move right past some of the things that we don't understand. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, you know, his betrothed wife. So let me just talk just a little bit about the history and background of the text. And then I want to look at the words of the angels in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. But first, just a little bit about what's happening here. Caesar Augustus, from 31 BC to AD 14. He reigned as the ruler of the Roman Empire. During his reign, he reorganized the entire empire. And as part of the reorganization, he ordered a registration of everyone, of course, for the purpose of taxation. He wanted to know everyone within his empire. Judea, where Mary and Joseph go to be registered, uh, Judea was 
part of the territory of Syria. So they were associated with the registration that took place with Syria. When we look at our translation, we, our, our Bibles tell us that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And if you read uh, critics of the Bible, this is one of the places where they will say that the Bible is not accurate. It's not reliable in its history because Quirinius was not governor of Syria, at least not at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that an, another man by the name of Varus was the governor of Syria. And so critics say, see, the Bible's wrong, but you can be sure there's always an answer to critics. They may not like it, but... But their conclusion isn't necessarily the only conclusion. And there's a couple of possible uh, answers to the critics. One is the Greek word for uh, governor is the word we get our English word hegemony from. H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y. Which often is translated governor but is also translated as someone in a powerful position, someone who is ruling over a, you know, whether it's an army or a province or a particular part of go government, he had hegemony. So what it really says is that Quirinius was in hegemony over Syria. And we do know that at that time in history, Quirinius, who wasn't yet governor, he would later become governor in AD 5, but he's not yet governor, but he was commander of the powerful armies of Syria, probably more well known than uh, Varus was. And so it could simply be saying, we could simply translate it, that it was during the time that Quirinius had oversight of Syria, at least the armies of Syria. That is one possible and a good solution. The other solution is that the registration of Caesar that began uh, under Varus, the governor, was a long registration that continued even to the time when uh, Quirinius became governor in AD 5. And it could just be saying, because Quirinius is much more well known than Varus, that this is the registration that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And if it did continue for a long time even past AD 5, then it's still correct. So the critics uh, aren't necessarily right. You can be sure that whenever somebody questions the word of God, there is an answer to it. You have to search for it and look for it. And now that you know the answer, you hope that when you're talk sharing the gospel with somebody and they say, yeah, the Bible's not true because it says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria and we know that he wasn't the governor of Syria. And you can give him an answer, which won't bring him to salvation, but will shut his mouth for a moment and his mind maybe and make him listen to you. 
It was under this registration that Joseph and Mary traveled to their home, their roots in Bethlehem of Judea. Of course, this is in keeping with the prophecy of Micah 5. Micah, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, said this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of, from of old, from ancient days. And so the rabbis and scribes, they they believed that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so Mary and Joseph, because they are of the royal line of David, they return to Bethlehem, the city of David. The fact that they're traveling together in the ancient world tells us that they are legally married. The word betrothed, when we think of betrothed, we think of engagement, which in some sense is true, but the problem is when we compare our sense of engagement to first century engagement, there's no comparison. Because people get engaged and break engagements without a second thought sometime. You know, well, I'm not married, I didn't make that commitment, and so give me my ring back. But betrothed in the first century Jewish world was a legal commitment to marriage. Betrothed meant that you had legally entered into marriage, though the marriage had not yet been sexually consummated. So they are married at this time, even though it has not been consummated. Mary is Joseph's wife. And of course, we know that from Matthew 1 and verse 24, when the angel appears to Joseph, whose wife whom, with whom he has not had any sexual relationship is now bearing a child and the angel comes to Joseph and tells him that Mary's going to bear a child by means of the Holy Spirit and it says when Joseph awoke from sleep he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him he took his wife but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So they are betrothed, legally married, though it has not yet been consummated. And they come to the city of Bethlehem, which appears to be very crowded because of the registration. Accommodations are scarce, and Joseph and Mary end up in a part of an inn or possibly even a private home that was normally reserved for animals. The word for inn can also mean a guest room and it's possible, maybe even likely, that they did what you would do when you visit family in a distant city. You stay with them. Now you may give your visiting family your best room or you may want to keep your best room and maybe all you have is your basement uh, for them to sleep in. But, you know, if you're traveling and living off the goodness of others, you should be happy with a basement. Uh, 
so they come, there's no room in this, whether it's a family home or an inn, and they end up sleeping in an adjoining room where the animals were kept. Which I find amazing in God's design in this world. He often turns things upside down the way we would see them because I would think that uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords should be staying at a five-star hotel. And uh, certainly because God had planned this before the foundation of the world, you know, it wasn't a lack of preparation for God that he couldn't find a room for his son. This was his plan, that he would have this lowly birth, that he would be born in a manger. And the sign for the, that the shepherds received from the angels is, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But you should know what the sign is. The sign is not swaddling clothes. Every Jewish mother would have wrapped their baby tightly, as often babies are wrapped to keep them from moving, harming themselves. Mary, as a good Jewish mother, knowing she was pregnant, certainly had prepared uh, in some way for birth, even though they didn't have a place to say, say, swaddling clothes is not a sign because every Jewish baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The sign is he is lying in a feeding trough for animals. That the King of Kings, the Messiah, is lying in a feeding trial that's normally filled with crown, but this baby, this one who was promised to bring redemption to the world, is in a manger. John Piper puts it this way, the manger is the sign. No other king anywhere in the world was lying in a feeding trough. Find him in a manger and you find the king of kings and you will know something. You will know something very crucial about his kingship because lying in a manger and I'm done with John Piper, but lying in a manger is not the beginning of a rags to riches story. It's not the story of one who was born in lowly circumstances and then rises to great success on earth. No, the manger is in some sense the high point as low as it is. You might think you can't get lower than the manger. But the, for the Messiah, the manger is the beginning of a downward road that ends with suffering on the cross. The manger is the beginning of living a life where Isaiah tells us he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And this downward spiral from the manger ends, as Philippians tells us, at the cross that though he 
was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross from that lowly manger to that lowly cross. And this is the one we follow. We must remember that. Remember when he was calling people to follow him in discipleship, he said to them one day as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the one born in a manger with nowhere to lay his head who ultimately goes to the cross for you and me. This is the background. Now look with me at verses 10 and 11. An angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Literally, it says, I bring you the gospel. I preach to you the gospel. That's normally how that word euangelion is, is, is translated. I preach to you the, the gospel of good news of great joy. Not just joy. I mean, we all have joys in life. And we treasure those momentary joys, even those lingering joys, but all of the joys of this earth, all of the happiness of this earth we know is temporal, it's fleeting, it's fragile. But here he's talking about mega joy, that's the Greek word, great joy. And that particular phrase is only used four times in the Word of God. Two times by Matthew and two times by Luke. This great good news of great joy. When Matthew first uses it, he uses it also at the birth of Jesus Christ. When the wise men are making their way to Bethlehem, it says when they saw the star they rejoice exceedingly but the same Greek phrase great joy they had great joy knowing that Christ was born and then in Luke 10 the first time he uses it the great joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning about seeing our need for this great joy, seeing where we find this great joy and then how this great joy can affect uh, all of our life if we are experiencing this great joy of the gospel. 
We'll see because of the recipients of this message, the shepherds, that this great joy comes to those who are aware of their emptiness, of their suffering, and of their despair. It comes to those who are aware of the need because it is only the great joy of the gospel that can fill our emptiness, that can heal our suffering, and that can vanquish all of our despair. False substitutes might put a band-aid on our problems, but only the great joy of the gospel will sustain us through all of life and through all of eternity. Think of these shepherds with me for a moment this morning. They knew the emptiness of the economic, political world in which they lived. Again, Augustus Caesar is ruling the greatest empire at that point in history. About 30 years prior to this angelic announcement, Augustus had had established what he called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that would last all the way up to AD 180 where the Roman Empire was, uh, Roman Empire was in absolute control and the, the wars were, 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 were being held down. The, the Pax Romana. But the problem with these shepherds was in this Pax Romana, they were not only shepherds, they were Jews. And as Jews, they were subjects of this foreign power. They were second-class citizens, if even that. They weren't citizens of the Roman, Roman Empire. They didn't enjoy the benefits and privileges like Paul could say later when they are, are going to beat him, uh, when they've taken him in a prison. And he says, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. And they stopped because that was privilege. That was, that was human blessing in that age, but not these shepherds. They knew the history of Israel. They knew the, the heights that, the, that their kingdom had reached under David and Solomon, the expanse, the wealth, the influence of the Jewish kingdom, and now their social, political, economic situation is not a cause for great joy. Now, how about you? Where do you find your joy? I think we all feel a little bit better when we get paid. But is that great joy? Is that the kind of joy that can sustain you when you wake up on that Friday morning and you check your bank account and you didn't get that direct deposit? What sustains us in life? There are some that will be very happy if Donald Trump is impeached. And there will be some who will be very happy if Donald Trump isn't impeached. And for people who live for that sort of thing, who are captured by that sort of thing, they're caught up with the news. They're up and down and up 
and down. That's not great joy. Because Donald Trump, his presence or his absence is not the blessing that the USA needs or what the world needs. It, that is not a source of great joy, nor a source of great pain. There is a greater joy that despite our political disappointments or our political excitement, there's a greater joy despite our economic difficulties or our economic success. There's a greater joy that should capture our hearts that, as you've heard me say, should be our greatest treasure, our deepest delight that will sustain us when times are good so that, that those times don't become idolatrous and when times are bad that those times don't become a time of despair because we have this unchanging joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew the emptiness of the political economic world that they were living in. They certainly knew the emptiness of the religious world they were living in. The spiritual condition of God's people, the Jewish people, the old covenant people, was at a low point. They're religious, but that's all they have is empty religion. Why, they even know all of the teaching about the Messiah, at least some of it. When Herod wants to know about the birth of this one who some are claiming to be, be the Messiah, he calls in the religious leaders, the scribes and, and, and the high priest, and he says, tell me about this. And they say, they go to Micah 5 too. they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew the promise of the Messiah, but they had, as you've heard, it said so often, you've, they had such a different concept of the Messiah. They didn't have Isaiah 53, one who's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one who's wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. They didn't have that. They wanted someone who would triumph over, over Rome, over Augustus Caesar, someone greater than him. The rabbis had sort of lost sight over the years of the intense depravity and sinfulness of man. The rabbis taught that there were basically two impulses in man. One is good and one is evil and that God actually created both of them. And your responsibility is to pursue the good. Often when I'm traveling, I will come across uh, Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews, the Hasidim. And if they have a free moment, they're always taking out their, their book 
and they are reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it because they believe that the way to God, the, the way to acceptance is to read the scripture and do good works. Read the scripture and do good works. Study the word of God faithfully. Well, let me say that's a good thing to do. Read the scripture and do good works, but it won't get you to heaven. Because you can never read the scripture with the purest of heart that God would expect. You could never read the scripture with, with the ability to obey it the way that God expects. You could never do enough good works to satisfy God. How good is good? And the answer is, you know, how, how good is good enough? The answer is perfection. And we all fall short of the glory of God. There was no joy in the religious world in that day. The hope of Messiah who would come and change the entire scene of human history was not going to take place. But these shepherds, perhaps there's some of the few in Israel Unlike the scribes who had made Judaism simply a religion of activity, instead of a religion of faith and expectancy that God would provide a deliverer who would save them, perhaps these shepherds are those simple ones who are waiting. Some have suggested that even... The sheep that they are attending to on the hillside that evening were sheep that were being prepared for sacrifice in the temple. And that even as they tended these sheep, their thoughts are of sacrifice and sin and, and the necessity of, of, of substitution. The gospel is a gospel of great joy when it comes to people who see the great need that they have. As a matter of fact, as you've heard me say before, the more I see the depth of my sinfulness, the more I rejoice in the glory of the gospel. The more I see my wickedness, the more I see the goodness and the grace of God, the gospel comes to people who are in great need. There's nothing like the joy of a new believer. But not only the joy of a new believer, the joy of one who is always a believer. The joy of one who came to a point in their life where they said, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved, and I'm at your mercy, and God saves them and forgives them and sets them free and cleanses them. They have joy. But you keep that joy when you keep believing and keep resting and keep delighting in the person and work of Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm afraid that even those of us who have tasted the great joy of the gospel, we sometimes fail to experience continually the great joy of the gospel. 
We get busy like the scribes and Pharisees and Christianity becomes a religion about what we do in order to earn God's favor and get points with God. And instead of delighting in Christ and resting in Christ, we are focused on our own selves and our own self-effort and we lose the good news of the great joy of the gospel. These shepherds were conscious of their sinfulness, conscious of their lowliness, conscious that they had no source of great joy, but the angels come to them. They don't come to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the high priests, they don't hear the announcement of the Savior's birth. Because unless you believe the bad news about yourself, you will never appreciate the good news of the great joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in some sense, these shepherds had greater capacity to experience great joy because they accepted their sinfulness and their inability and their helplessness. We see our need and we keep seeing our need. That's what keeps us going to Christ and resting in Christ and believing in Christ. And as Jesus said, you know, who, he that keeps coming to me will never hunger. And whoever keeps believing in me will never thirst. So we not, must not only know our need, but we must know the place of great joy. And it is so obvious, as our text says, I bring you great good news of great joy, which is for all peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Great joy is about God in human flesh. Great joy is about fulfillment of messianic promise that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Fulfillment, great joy is about God's bringing to fruition his eternal plan that Christ would be our Savior even before the world began. Great joy is about a Savior. It's about Christ. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus as our Lord. And it's the only place to find great joy. Last week I mentioned Voltaire, an infidel, perhaps of the most pronounced type. And he wrote later in his life, I wish I had never been born. That's where apostasy leads you. But great joy in the gospel leads you to wake up every morning saying, I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I have eternal hope. My Savior's coming again for me. He's preparing a place for me. Lord Byron was known for his extravagance for the life of pleasure that his wealth afforded him. 
and in his life, later in his life, he said these words. He said, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Got everything! But not the great joy of the gospel. Jay Gould was an American millionaire, entrepreneur, railroad developer. When he was dying, Jay Gould said this. He said, I suppose that I am the most miserable man on earth. And we could go on. Alexander the Great, great conqueror, conquered the known world of his day. And having accomplished that, they say he wept in his, in his tent. Before he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. No joy. He had accomplished what he wanted. But no joy. Where is real joy found? The angel says, I preach the gospel to you. That there's a savior born. His name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And this is good news of great joy. What a joy it was in our recent trip to Africa. For Steve and I to stand before hundreds and hundreds of blind people and be able to talk to people who have never had the joy of seeing what you and I can see in life. But to be able to tell them that there is a joy that's even greater, that there's a greater treasure, a deeper delight, that there is Jesus whom having not seen we love, whom though we now see him not, yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory that you don't need eyes to see or to experience the greatest, deepest joy in life. So let me apply it for just a moment. This great joy isn't just something that's way out there that you talk about in esoteric terms. It's a reality that grips your life, that transforms your life. What do you do when someone misunderstands you, attacks you, hurts you, makes your life difficult because you're a Christian? You choose to be faithful to Jesus Christ. So what do you do when you are persecuted? Well, here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's great joy in the gospel that sustains you even with the isolation and rejection of life. What do you do when life takes a wrong turn? At least you think it's a wrong turn. Maybe your marriage is difficult. And your work is arduous, it's heavy, it's burdensome. And relationships are challenging and kids, raising kids are disappointing. And when your money is tight and maybe even gone, how do you respond? James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many different kinds. Consider it joy. Why? Because I like what's happening to me? No, because I know that Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again and that he's mine. So Paul can say, we rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, I know that. Very rarely for a, for a righteous man will some die, but Jesus died for me, a sinner. I rejoice in my suffering because I have the gospel. I have Jesus. I have this great joy. Again, we all can confess that there are times in life that we have lost the great joy of the gospel. I know I wish I could go back at times and take back words that I have said in a heated moment or attitudes that I have had or thoughts that I've had. Maybe when I disciplined my children in anger. Maybe when I spoke to my wife in an unkind way. I wish in those moments I had had the great joy of the gospel to make me different in those situations in life. But I can't go back. I just say, as I often say, God forgive me. And I don't want to be like that. I want to live in the great joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let that satisfy the deep longings of my soul. I want to be like the third century man who, when he was anticipating death, he wrote these words to his friend. He said, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I've discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they don't care. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people 
are Christians. And I am one of them. Are you? Let's pray together, shall we? I am one of them who has tasted that great joy of the gospel. Do you know Christ as your Savior and your Lord this morning? If not, right where you sit, make this the day that you are born again into the family of God forever. Right where you sit, talk to God. Here are words that you can speak to him with. Say, Father, I know I need Christ. I know I'm a sinner, and I know that I'm helpless. I need a Savior, and I believe that Jesus Christ is your Son who died in my place and rose again. And today, I ask for forgiveness and a new life. I want to be your child. I want to be a Christian forever. While our heads are still bowed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today and meant it, would you find me after the service and let me know you did that? Or Pastor Steve, or Pastor Rolando, or Pastor Gary. Find one of us and tell us today, I became a Christian. Father, help our faith to grow, our discipline of faith to become more mature, that we look to Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure and deepest delight. I pray in his name. Amen.